As we stand, let's pray together. We thank you again, our Lord and God, for your word. We thank you that it addresses us and addresses our world, that it is as relevant today as it ever was when it was first written. And we pray that you would show us its relevance today and show us how we should respond to your praise and glory. Amen. Please do sit. Well, do please uh, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 75. We've just been singing uh, many of the words from this psalm, Psalm 75, as we continue this uh, little series on Sunday mornings looking through uh, some of the psalms from uh, the 70s, Psalm 73 last week, 75 this week, and Psalm 77 next week. Page 588, Psalm 75. Well, once again, we we look back on a week where acts of indiscriminate terrorism and reactive military action have dominated the news. A week where evil people have ended the lives of ordinary people. A week of bloodshed and injustice again. And it's in weeks like this that people say to me, I can't believe in a God who doesn't care about evil. It's a fair and, and reasonable statement. And let me tell you, nor can I believe in a God who doesn't care about evil. And neither does the Bible, as we saw last week, and as we'll see again here in Psalm 75 this morning. In Psalm 75, the psalmist, whose name is Asaph, you'll see that from the the heading there, the psalmist Asaph is grappling with living in a world that appears to be out of control. A tottering, quaking is his word, that's how he describes it in verse 3, when the earth and all its people quake. And we felt that again this week. Uh, The the bombings in Mumbai, Israel's offensive on Lebanon. Uh, And never mind these huge international events that have hit the news. Do you not feel that our society is wobbling? Dishonest business and corrupt politics, the NatWest 3 extradited over the Enron collapse, the, the cash for peerage investigation. What is this once great nation coming to? Uh, Caroline and I were only commenting in the car on Friday that our children are living in a very different world to the world that we were raised in. Maybe you feel that about your children or grandchildren. Uh, Drugs, crime, murder, child molestation. One way and another it seems that we live in a tottering world. That's verse 3 of Psalm 75. And as we look on to verse 4, we see that we live in a world of boasting, as Asaph the psalmist did. You see, to the arrogant, I say, boast no more. It is remarkable how people brag about things that 15 or 20 years ago we'd been embarrassed to mention. In the office on Monday morning, colleagues will pride themselves on their drinking exploits, their sexual conquests, their tax evasion, those sorts of things. That's Psalm 75. People are boasting. The world tottering, the wicked boasting, and that all leaves Christians discouraged. Where is the God of the Bible in all of this? If if this really is his world, why doesn't he act to do something about it? See, that's how Psalm 74 ends. And I do think we need to see often the Psalms running one onto the other. They don't always work like that, but I think these two do. So look at the end of Psalm 74, verse 22. Rise up, O God, and defend your cause. Remember how fools mock you all day long. The wicked flourish, Lord. People mock your name. God, why don't you do something about it? Rise up and act. And so Psalm 75 then is an honest look at the real world around us. 
and a response to that. But of course, at first glance, it appears to be far from honest and real, this psalm. See, verse 1 is quite a surprise. I've, I've titled the opening three verses of this psalm, Christian, sing of God's amazing acts. And then we're, now that we know that this psalm is all about the world tottering and the, and, the, and the arrogant boasting, then verse 1 is a great surprise, isn't it? We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. Men tell of your wonderful deeds. Typical. We live in a world falling apart and Christians go to church on Sunday and sing songs to God. Verse 1 is just what unbelievers always suspected. Christianity is escapism. A chance to run away from the harsh realities of the world for a few hours. That's what verse 1 looks like, doesn't it? Rejoicing that God is near, verse 1. Well, if he's so near, why doesn't he do something about the state of the world? Giving thanks for God's wonderful deeds, end of verse 1. Well, if he's so full of breathtaking actions, why doesn't he strut his stuff and sort the world out? Well, we could easily think that as we read verse 1, but, but hang on a moment. Reserve judgment just for a little while longer because the wonderful deeds the psalm rejoices in at the end of verse 1 are laid out for us and not least of all in verse 2 see verse 2 you say that is, that is God says I choose the appointed time it is I who judge uprightly see God says there is an appointed judgment day there will be a day when all wrongs will be put right now, how do we know that? How can you and I be so assured? Well, uh, turn with me. Keep your finger in, in Psalm 75 because we're going to come straight back to it. But turn with me to, to Acts 17, if you will. It's page 1114, the second of our, of our two readings that, that Linda read for us. Page 1114, Acts chapter 17. So here in Psalm 75, the psalmist is saying, yep, God has appointed a day when he would judge the world. How do we know? Acts chapter 17, verse 31. Here is Paul preaching one of his magnificent uh, sermons. He's, he's in Athens, of course. And as he comes to the conclusion, he says in verse 31, for he, God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's talking of Jesus. So he says there's going to be a judgment day. That day has been appointed. The man who's going to do the judging has been appointed. How do we know? Second half of verse 31, God has given proof of this to all men by raising him, Jesus, from the dead. See, there's the certainty. Look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Christian, when, when you see these terrible things happening in the world... You are sure to think to yourself, if you're a thinking person, and I know you are, you are sure to think to yourself, is this really true? If Christianity is true, why do these things keep happening? Well, then we're told, remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the proof that there will be a general resurrection. See, death is not the end. Death is never the end. Not for anyone. When I die, I will not just rot in the ground and I don't just end up in heaven somehow. All, all people, Christian or unbeliever, all people will be raised after death. Raised to face Judge Jesus. That's what the resurrection proves. 
Now it seems to me most Christians only view the resurrection of Jesus as proof that Christians will be raised to life beyond the grave. Now that is true, but this says, Acts 17, that there is so much more. Jesus' resurrection is a cast-iron guarantee that there will be a general resurrection, a judgment to come. And that is wonderfully reassuring. See, as we turn back to Psalm 75, isn't the general resurrection something, uh, the judgment, something that we should be praising God for? Verse 1. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. Men tell of your wonderful deeds. The wonderful deeds of God include the fact, in verse 2, that he will judge all people one day. Isn't that wonderful? It's wonderful because justice will be done. I don't know about you, but I can't live without the thought of justice being done. Ten years ago, at about 9.30am on the 13th of March, 1996, 43-year-old Thomas Hamilton left his home at number 7 Kent Road in Dunblane in Scotland. You remember the story well, don't you? He drove to the Dunblane Primary School with a pair of pliers, four handguns and more than 700 rounds of ammunition. Having cut the telephone wires, Hamilton burst into the assembly hall where a class of five and six-year-olds were having a gym lesson and he opened fire. On that day, Thomas Hamilton murdered 16 children and one teacher before turning the gun on himself. The following day I was watching Kilroy. I can't believe that I've just admitted that publicly, but I was. And the previous day's massacre was the subject of discussion. And I still remember one woman in the studio saying this, the most terrible thing for those parents is that justice will never be done. See, Thomas Hamilton had shot himself dead and would never face a fair trial. Justice will never be done. That's where we're left without a God. But Psalm 75 and Acts 17 tells us something quite different. Justice will be done because Jesus has been appointed as judge of all people. Thomas Hamilton will face trial. He will stand before Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? Isn't that a wonderful deed of God at the end of verse 1? And Psalm 75 verse 2 tells us that judgment day has been set. I, says God, choose the appointed time. See, there's no doubt about this judgment day. It's already in God's diary. Isn't that wonderful? It's going to happen. In a tottering world of injustice, the judgment of God is a wonderful deed and it's worth singing about. That's why the psalm begins as it does. Justice will be done one day. And it will be a day of justice. Verse 2, it is I who judge uprightly. It's a very important word, isn't it? On that day, there will be no miscarriages of justice. No muddle-headed juries, no corrupt judges, no bent legal systems. Verse 2, Jesus will judge uprightly, perfectly, justly. And he can do that because he sees all things, even our hearts. So not only does Jesus see things as they really are, but he sees the motives behind them. And he is totally impartial. It's very good news. It is a wonderful truth in life that's wonderfully liberating. It means that I don't have to do as Zinedine Zidane. I don't have to take the law into my own hands. I don't need to seek revenge. Even if someone makes the most horrendously derogatory remarks against my family, and even if there's no human witness there, Jesus hears it. Justice will be done. The truth will out. Of course, these days, people don't like the message of judgment. But you see, verse 1, the Bible rejoices in it. 
Uh, a friend of, uh, of mine was telling me just the other week, he's a clergyman too, he was telling me just the other week that he was invited to speak at another church and the clergyman of this other church said to him that he liked him to come and speak but uh, he said, don't talk about judgment, will you? Increasingly, people in the church don't like the message of judgment but the Bible rejoices in it, verse 1. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. Men tell of your wonderful deeds and verse 2 is the next wonderful deed that he speaks of. The message of judgment is good news that God is a, a just God, that he will put wrongs right. And here is why theological liberalism is such a disaster. Of course, it sounds so right when people in the church say, oh, I can't believe in a God of love who will judge people. Sounds good until you think about it. See, the Bible can't believe in a God who does, doesn't judge people, not a God of love. Can you imagine living in a world where there will be no judgment? It renders everything you do meaningless, actually. The world would be an appalling world to live in and it would tell me that God isn't loving if he didn't judge. I, um, I carry around with me in my wallet um, these uh, ch- pictures of my children um, Susanna and Bethan, uh, just six on Monday they were, and, and, and little Joshua. I, I, I have them in my wallet all the time. I don't often open my wallet, so I don't look at them very often, but, uh, but I do carry them around with me all the same. And, you know, as I look at them, I, I feel real deep affection towards them as any father would. But just imagine something terrible happening to any of these little ones. Well, we were thinking of Thomas Hamilton and, and the dumb Blaine thing. They were six-year-olds. It could have been my children. Imagine that would happen to my children and I were not to call for justice. I were not to be angry about it. I think you would call my love for my children into question, wouldn't you? You'd wonder if I really love them at all. Well, God's judgment flows out of his love. A God who doesn't judge doesn't love. And for that reason, the Bible rejoices in it. Isn't it a wonderful deed of God? as is the fact that God is the pillar of society. You see, here's another wonderful deed, verse 3. When the earth and all its people quake, it is I who hold its pillars firm. God is the pillar of society. See, at times we we look at this tottering world and and we despair. Well, I do anyway. We we may well wonder when we pick up our our newspapers, we may well wonder where it's all going to end. Verse 3 says, don't lose your nerve. Christian, God is holding it all together. Indeed, were it not for God, it would have, would have all gone up in smoke years ago. God is the pillar of society. He's holding the world's uh, pillars firm. But verse 3 tells me, whatever the state of the world, he says, don't panic. The foundation of the universe is kept in place by the Lord. No rogue nation will end the world in a nuclear holocaust. However, Iran plans to use their facility to enrich uranium and they may be just using it for good reasons. But however they use it, they will not blow up the world. They may have a nuclear arm. They may well fire it. It may well blow something up. They will not end the world with it. And North Korea will not blow up the world. Because the Lord says, verse 3, it is I who holds the earth's pillars firm. Isn't that wonderful news? Isn't that worth singing about? Verse 1, we give thanks for the wonderful deeds of the Lord. And so as the world totters and as mankind boasts, Christian, don't be dismayed, but sing of God's amazing acts, his judgment, his sustaining the world. Second, unbeliever, listen to God's loving warning. 
verses 4 to 8. Verse 4, to the arrogant I say, boast no more, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horns. Do not lift your horns against heaven. Do not speak with outstretched neck. See, in these verses, God is speaking to the arrogant and the wicked. But please don't misunderstand this. The arrogant and the wicked in the Psalms, and indeed in the whole of the Bible, but you see it most clearly in the Psalms, are not a particularly bad bunch of people. No, the arrogant and the wicked are those who do not follow the one true living God of the Bible. Because it is arrogant to ignore God. It is wicked to live against him. Very simply, the arrogant and the wicked are those who sing along with Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. I I ran off the the words of of that song off the internet uh, just this week. Uh, Here's the last verse. For what is man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has naught to say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and I did it my way. Well, that's wicked and arrogant, isn't it? I did it my way. I didn't go the way of the person who kneels. No, I don't need God. I don't need to kneel down in prayer. See, in verses 4 to 8, Almighty God addresses people who sing with Sinatra. Those who refuse to bow the knee to Jesus. Well, there's a loving warning here. God says, boast no more, verse 4. To the wicked, he says, do not lift up your horns. Verse 5, do not lift up your horns against heaven. Uh, Horns in the Bible are a demonstration of strength. Uh, It's what a ram or a goat does. You know, when you see a ram or a goat with big horns, you think he's really strong. And you see them lifting up its horns as an act of aggression throwing its head back in pride and self-sufficiency. You can see them on the mountaintop there, can't you? Oh, we see it all the time, in the office, on the television, on the, on the cinema screen. People lifting up their horns, speaking with, as it says, verse 5, outstretched neck, so proud of themselves. And not just individuals, but, but corporations. You know, these big city firms, they may have a plaque on the wall outside their headquarters that say, in God we trust but go to the annual dinner and they boast and speak with outstretched neck. Look at all that we've achieved. When I was uh, working in the newspaper business, every week at, uh, we'd have the executive meeting and I'd hear the editor boasting, here's why we're the leading newspaper. Boasting in our strength. It happens all the time and God says, stop it, verse 4. Boast no more. Why does he say that? Because boasting gets you away from God. When I boast, I'm taken up with myself. And that's what leads to all the injustice in the world. People pushing themselves forward and pushing others down. That will be judged one day. But God doesn't want to judge people. He's a loving God. He wants to save people from judgment. How very kind of God to warn us of what's to come. Isn't he very kind? And so he says, stop it. The judgment is coming, so please stop it. Don't keep reoffending. Don't keep adding to your criminal record that you will have to face Judge Jesus one day. But of course we don't believe that. Why is it that people feel able to keep committing the most horrendous crimes? Because they don't think there'll be a day of reckoning. Because they think they can get away with it. Uh, the, the, the war crimes tribunals of recent years have been very revealing. 
We've witnessed some of the most uh, dreadful crimes in the last 20 years. Think of the things done in Kosovo. Why did people do such barbaric things? Because they thought they'd never be caught. They thought that uh, once this war was over, then it would be in the past. Well, look, here God says, you may think you're through with the past, but the past is not through with you. There will be a judgment. And so if you're not yet a wholehearted follower of Jesus, God says, verse 4, stop boasting. And verse 5, stop lifting your horns against me. How do we boast? And we can all do it whether we're Christian or not. How do we boast? Well, a friend of mine says it's the way we, it's the way we speak of all the A's. All the A's. Our assets. Our apartment. You know, taking pride in our postcode. We live in S10, you know. Our affluence. Trusting in our bank balance. Our accent. The fact that we're well-bred. For some young men, it's their, it's their affairs. Boasting of all the conquests they've had. Or for others, it's their athleticism. See, boasting in all the A's. God says don't boast. He says don't boast because you've got nothing to boast about. Whoever you are, you're only, you're only who you are because of God, verse 6. No one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt a man, but it is God who judges. He brings one down, he exalts another. The G8 nations are, are in Russia at the moment. As you know, the heads of those nations are in Russia. And there was a report on the radio yesterday on Russian millionaires. As economically Russia gets itself back on its feet, many have made a personal fortune. And so there was this uh, uh, program, a report on, on these uh, Russian millionaires. And the reporter described these people on several occasions as self-made men. Verse 6 says no one is self-made and no one makes anyone else what they are. No one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt a man. We live in a world of spin doctors. And if you're not important enough to have a spin doctor, then you become your own spin doctor. You know, it's how we promote ourselves in the office, down the pub. Have you seen it? God says, don't bother, verse 7. It is God who judges. He brings one down, he exalts another. If you're anything at all, God has made you what you are. And be assured, God can bring you down. Whoever you are, And we will see that supremely on Judgment Day, which is vividly portrayed for us in verse 8. Do you see it? In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. See, in verse 8, it's the end of the world and God has a drink in his hand. But it's not a celebratory glass of bubbly. It's a poison chalice. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, then verse 8 says you'll be forced to drink that cup. Oh, if you do follow Jesus, you won't drink the poison chalice because when Jesus died on a cross 2,000 years ago, he drank it for you. And do you remember the night before Jesus died, he prayed, Father, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. As Jesus died, he was drinking the cup of God's wrath, God's righteous, settled anger against the wicked world. As Jesus died on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, he was God-forsaken, cut off from God. He drunk the poison chalice as he died on the cross. He took upon himself the wrath of God. 
You see, Jesus is both the judge of verse 2 and the saviour who takes the judgment of God in verse 8. You know, there are only two cups in the Bible. This one, the cup of God's wrath and the cup of salvation. You'll find that cup in Psalm 116. And we will all drink one or the other. Either the cup of wrath or the cup of salvation. And which one we drink depends on our response to Jesus. And and so this psalm asks you, what will you have to drink? You know, often we say that to people, don't we? What will you have to drink? Well, the next time someone asks you that question, maybe you're at a barbecue, what will you have to drink? Next time somebody asks you that question, uh, will you you think of this, 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 uh, this chapter, Psalm 75, what will you have to drink? The cup of wrath or the cup of salvation? I must either face Jesus as my judge or as my saviour. Christians sing of God's amazing acts, unbeliever, listen to God's loving warning, and thirdly and very, very briefly, everyone declare God's justice to the world. See verse 9, As for me, I will declare this forever. I will sing praise to the God of Jacob. In a world that is tottering, where the wicked are boasting, so the Christian has wonderful good news to declare. Wonderful good news, it's all in this psalm. God has set a day when Judge Jesus will put all wrongs right. Isn't that worth declaring to the world? We believe in a just God, a good God. Meanwhile, the Lord is the pillar of society. Until that day comes, he is upholding his world. Isn't that good news? He's sustaining the world. The world's not out of control, he's sustaining it. That's worth declaring. And the reason God sustains the world now is so that we can tell of Jesus the Saviour who drank the poison chalice so that we don't have to. Isn't that good news to declare? And so God says, verse 2, I will cut off the horns of the... Verse 10, I will cut off the horns of all the wicked, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Let's pray together. Lord God Almighty, we we say thank you to you for these wonderful truths that are there in your word, for clear for us to see and to be encouraged by. That uh, despite what it looks like in this uh, tottering world where the wicked are boasting, you are in control. You are the one who holds this earth's pillars firm. You're the one who will one day bring all wrongs uh, to right. And we thank you that we have a great message to declare, a great message of your justice, but also of your saving act in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we need not drink down this uh, cup of wrath, but that you hand to us freely the cup of salvation. May we both rejoice in it, or if we've never ever taken it, take it even today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we appropriately sing then, In Christ alone my hope is found. He's my light, my strength, my song.